0: So glad you've joined us once again at Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. I am your shopkeeper, Chris Baker. And today, I'm going to take something off the wall here. It's quite large, if you haven't noticed. Yes, these are uh, a pair of antlers. I know you're probably thinking deer. No, 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 it's not deer. Uh, They're too large for any normal size white-tailed deer. I bet you're thinking, well, it's quite large, maybe moose. No, these are very spindly antlers. The points less full like a moose would be and uh, larger and fuller than any elk that you've ever seen. No, these are in fact the antlers of a wendigo. And these antlers are in fact the subject of a new movie and a subject that we're going to discuss here on Odds Bodkin's Curiosity Shop. So let's pull out the kinetoscope and take a look into Scott Cooper's Antlers. Now, Antlers has a a long, sorted, much-anticipated tale to talk about before we get into the movie. The story is based off a Nick Antosca short story. Of course, Nick Antosca has done some screenwriting. He's done some... uh, authoring and it was part of the writing team on this movie along with uh, C. Henry Chason and Scott Cooper. This is a Guillermo del Toro produced film and he actually handpicked Scott Cooper because he felt Scott Cooper was bringing to the table what he wanted Antlers to become in this uh, supernatural horror. But it really starts back and I believe, uh, we first heard about this in late 2019, early 2020, but uh, and I was so excited. This movie looked like it had uh, a lot, a lot of what I look for in a horror—some uh, sort of creature. It looked like it had uh, some sort of mystery behind it. It felt dark and it felt eerie. It felt atmospheric. I really wasn't sure what to expect from it, so I was really anticipating Antlers. And then COVID hit. Uh, hit us hard in 2020 and put a stop to any new films coming out. And this kind of got put on the back burner. And then when, uh, I believe, Fox was bought by Disney, this movie was kind of in limbo, but it was so exciting to see uh, earlier this year that it was going to get its release. And it released actually on my birthday, October 29th. And I could not wait. My wife is not so much a fan of horror. And although she she does get caught up, I'll be sitting on the couch watching a movie or a TV show. Next thing I look over, she's standing in the bedroom doorway watching. And then next thing I know, she's sitting beside me watching. So she's drawn to the darkness, much like myself. But uh, she just hasn't admitted it yet. But she would not go to see the movie with me. So uh, I had my birthday off from work. So I took in a matinee and enjoyed it. I tried to convince her. Because Carrie Russell was in this, and she was a Felicity fan back in the 90s when that show was out. And I told her, it, it's practically like Felicity. Uh, she did not buy, and she did not bite. So I, yes, I did end up going to see it by myself. But uh, but I enjoyed it all the same. And I have to tell you, it was well worth the wait. Now, I did not know that it was based on the short story by uh, Nick Antosca. So after the fact, after I saw the movie, I sought out the short story and actually read it not a very long short story, but it uh, it is loosely based on the short story. And I don't know how much of this story being fleshed out a little more and changed in various ways was a Guillermo del Toro decision. Or if Nick and Tosca had some say in that. In, in kind of, like I said, fleshing out the story he had originally created a little more. Uh, broadening the scope of the story uh, a little more. But Whatever the reasoning was for for making this a, a fuller story. It really like I said I enjoyed the the short story, but it just felt like the beginnings, like a first draft. It really needed fleshing out. There was there was so much to to delve into into the characters that we didn't get in the short story. And the endings are uh quite different, but uh but we'll talk about that later. But uh, I really enjoyed the fact that they took these characters and some of them they changed a little bit. Some of them they didn't really change all that much. And we get a fuller story. We get a bigger picture. And there's more heart to the story. This story did what I think a lot of the critics that are bashing this Hate is that they give you a reason to care about these characters. I think sometimes the critics and fans alike see a monster movie and they just want a big larger-than-life monster ripping and tearing through society and, and causing gore and horror and they don't really, they don't care about the characters. They don't want to care about the characters because they just want to see somebody getting uh, their guts ripped open. Which is, uh, that's all good and well. But when you care about the characters, the stakes are higher. That's what makes horror. That's what makes true horror. That's what makes true terror is finding somebody that you want to live and knowing that they might not, that they're at the hands of this merciless entity, beast, murderer, slasher, what have you, and they could lose their life. Uh, that's, That's the horror of it. Not the act of the killing. That's, we see that every day on the news. That's not what makes true horror. And I think a lot of the critics just, they have this perception in their mind of what horror should be. And usually it's just blood, guts, and carnage. And that's, that's a dime a dozen. That's easy. That's simple to make. Uh, that's cheap to make. There's no emotional investment to make that. And I, I like a movie where I care about the characters enough that I don't want to see anything happen to them. And and you get that creature, and you get the suspense, and you get the, the terror of what's lurking around the corner or what's lurking in the shadows. And I think you get all that with antlers. So I was really, really happy that they fleshed this story out, made me care about these characters even more than I did when I read the short story, and gave me a bigger picture, set up the stakes a little more and and there's some thematic things going on through this you've got the theme of trauma that's a big hot button issue in in horror movies these days just ask halloween and halloween kills Uh, halloween 2018 i should say and halloween kills you know that's that's a that's a big topic for for horror and i think horror is a great way to to discuss those themes but uh, this also deals with the theme of abuse and neglect. And I think that this was a, a great vehicle to touch on those themes. Not beat anybody over the head with themes. But but make it there. Make it at the forefront. And it gives the movie heart. It gives the movie a reason to be. And these characters a reason to live. And a reason for you to care about them. That, uh, that just raises the stakes. When... Stuff hits the fan, and all hell breaks loose. and And this is a very patient movie. Uh, I've heard it described as kind of like a slow burn, and and you really do get that. It, it starts out very quiet, very isolated. This is all set in the Pacific Northwest, up in Oregon, and you, you feel the isolation of this small town. You feel the the isolation of these people, these characters that we'll we'll get into in a little bit. Uh, this is kind of the non-spoilery section uh, of this of this little talk about antlers, but you get you get that sense of isolation, you get that sense of loneliness, you get that sense of uh, melancholy and, and sadness of these characters and what they've gone through in the past and what they're going through right now, and and it just builds slowly, builds more and more towards this this climax where everyone's fruit comes to bear and the wheels that were set in motion at the beginning are out of control at the end. And it's such a a great way to do it, a great way to do this movie. Uh, that was another critique I heard where uh, critics were complaining that it was just all about the characters at the beginning and I, I don't know what they wanted. It was a lot of setup to make these characters, fully formed characters for as much as you can fully form a character and about what was an hour, 40 minute runtime, but it made you care about these characters. You made, made you care about the outcome for these characters and, and what these characters are going through. So I I thoroughly enjoyed antlers. Uh, Could it have been better? Certainly Uh, any movie could be better, but as it was by itself, uh, I thought it was a really good movie. And and I'm excited to see once it uh, comes out on DVD or Blu-ray, uh, I'm excited to see what hit the cutting room floor. Because it did seem like in a couple spots where there were some deleted scenes that we didn't get. Because there was one scene where the Kerry Russell character, which we'll kind of get into the characters and their names here in a little bit, but the Kerry Russell character is putting together a picture drawn by this little kid, Lucas, expertly played by Jeremy T. Thomas. I'll talk about his performance here uh, a little later on in the podcast, but Jeremy T. Thomas's character, Lucas, uh, rips up this picture and we never get to see that. We never get to see what led up to that. And she's putting the pieces of this picture together that she's fished out of the trash. Uh, we We don't know where that came from. Like I said, we don't get to see the Lucas character ripping up this picture and throwing it away. All we see is her putting the pieces together, which was a scene in the short story of her talking with him and him ripping up this picture, throwing it away. She fishes it out, puts the pieces of the picture back together like a puzzle, and the story continues. But but like I said, there's there's things that seem missing, like uh, like they were limited for time. Uh, there was a hard and fast. This cannot be any longer than this time limit and some things had to hit the cutting room floor maybe for maybe it was just for pacing who knows but uh, I'm excited to see uh, anything that maybe they filmed but didn't quite make it into the movie to to get a more complete picture of this of this story so uh, I enjoyed this movie this movie had a lot of heart and I know I've said that about other movies but it was a movie that made you care about what happened to these characters uh, even beyond the horror of what's to come once we get to the finale Uh, it also had atmosphere for days i mean this was creepy it's the rainy northwest of america up in oregon and Washington State, that it just constantly rainy and overcast feel to it. Uh, there was such isolation with the the vast wilderness that surrounded this small community. And they did something that I really, <laughs> I, I always notice it. I don't know why it stands out so much to me, but it's that the Shining shot from Stanley Kubrick's The Shining when they're in the car. And they're driving to the Overlook. And they're going through the Rocky Mountains. And you get those big wide shots from up above of the vehicle driving this whiny road. And it just kind of plays to the isolation. And they do a lot with that in this. To to play into that isolation of these characters. And it's so full of that sort of atmosphere. It's creepy. It's unnerving to a degree. Everyone feels so alone everyone feels so on their own and you just want them to come together because you know, there's safety in numbers and you're just hoping for that but it's yeah they they do a good job of, of separating these characters and building this tension of solitude if you will and then it all builds to the horror that befalls this child Lucas and his family and we get to see we get to see without seeing at the beginning but then there's a flashback that kind of really lays the groundwork of what happened what got them to this state and then the crescendo to this whole story and the creature design uh, was just absolutely fabulous on this i heard one uh, reviewer talking about how it was the best creature design they've seen since the ritual and i loved the ritual the ritual had these sort of things going throughout it um you know the the solitude uh the isolation uh, of these characters in this vast wilderness this force of nature this elemental creature that seems to be stalking them and then when they finally revealed a creature it was just i was blown away when i saw that so i can i can totally agree with that sort of analogy of the ritual and their creature design and antlers because I think it was a a very similar reveal once you finally saw this creature and it was the best representation of what you're going to see this creature revealed to be again this is I'm trying to keep this part of the the talk a little unspoilery Uh, so if you haven't watched the uh the movie yet and you're still thinking about it i'm not going to ruin too much for you but we are going to get into some spoiler territory i'm going to talk about the the characters in depth going to talk about the story quasi in depth and we're going to talk about the, the creature itself that uh is revealed to us but i encourage you like i said if you haven't seen antlers uh you really need to see this movie because it is uh at At the very least, the creature design in and of itself was spectacular. I like it because they are patient with that. So many films. I think that's what a lot of these quote-unquote critics and reviewers are so pissed off about. Is that we don't get the monster thrown in our face from minute one. And just having it run rampant through society. Just killing at its leisure. Uh, (laughs) And that that's all good and well that's good for some stories but that was the brilliance of a lot of the classic horror films from the 70s and through the 80s and and even even in the 60s and earlier you know alfred hitchcock was the master of patience when it came to a movie and a slow burn that's what makes horror horror and not just this, you know, if you want just a creature feature, if you want Godzilla rampaging through Tokyo, then that's, that's a Godzilla movie. And that's a, that's a monster movie. And that's, I don't find that horror uh, per se, especially the, the originals. Uh, I suppose there are some elements of horror, but that's, to me, that's not horror. That's just a monster running rampant through, through the streets of wherever. Where this, this is a horror movie. This needs time, needs time to build tension, till you just can't take it anymore and it breaks. And that's what you get with this movie. You get so much patience, you get so much character building, you get so much tension building to the point where what, what's what's gonna happen? What what is this? Why why can't I figure this out? Or or maybe you did figure it out. I, I kind of had my suspicions all along, but then when it's finally revealed and we get that end it's all worth it. So that to me, that's what makes good horror is having the patience to not put the monster right in front of your face from Jump Street and just letting things play out. Let the story play out. Let the characters uh, develop. Let the story develop. and, And you get all of that with this. Now, if you haven't seen it, go see it then maybe come back and check this next part out. But uh, we are going to get into some spoiler territory right now. So uh, if you haven't watched the movie, you don't want anything spoiled, you might want to turn it off. Press pause, go watch Antlers, and then come back. This is where we're really going to talk about these characters. And I guess the first person we should really talk about is kind of the star of the show, uh, Carrie Russell. I joked about her being in Felicity, but she is actually no stranger to a horror at least lately because she was she was played Lacey um, Barrett in Dark Skies back in 2013 which I I absolutely loved I was that you want to talk about some horror right there (laughs) you want to talk about some slow burn Uh, that was a a fantastic movie alien abduction movies always scare the the bejesus out of me and, and that movie did it and she did a fantastic job in that. Of course, she's done uh, a lot of sci-fi stuff with being a part of Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. So it's really cool to kind of see her go from uh, kind of the the drama and some of the comedy dramedy stuff that she did earlier in her career, and now that she's she's older and more mature, and she's starting to do more things like Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Star Wars, Dark Skies, and and now Antlers. And I really thought she was great in this role because uh, she plays Julia Meadows, who is a, a troubled woman. You kind of get the suspicion that maybe she's had some battles with alcoholism in the past. We never see her drinking in this, but we always see her uh, at a grocery store being tempted by the bottles of liquor that they have for sale at this like little convenience store. And they don't really go into that which is kind of kind of what I liked about this because they did flesh out these characters a little more from what they were in the original short story. But we don't get the whole picture. We don't get the whole story. It still does leave uh, some things to the imagination as to what these characters went through. But uh, Julia grew up in this small town in Oregon and she suffered uh, abuse from her father. Her father... At the very least, again, they don't go into great detail, but they give you enough to get some idea of what this woman has gone through in her life. Uh, She was certainly molested by her father, maybe more. Like I said, they don't go into great detail with that, but as soon as she could get away from this small town, she did, leaving her younger brother to be with her father. And he eventually, in the recent past, killed himself. And now that he's gone, she's come back to teach in this small town in Oregon where she she grew up. As a teacher, as somebody who's gone through abuse and trauma, we find her gravitated to this child, Lucas, in her class. The short story by Nick Antosca is called The Quiet Boy. And this character, Lucas, played by Jeremy T. Thomas, uh, Lucas Weaver, he's that kid in class, that dirty kid probably smells a little bit definitely scrawny and, and undernourished and doesn't say much keeps to himself keeps everybody at arm's length gets picked on gets bullied and that's this kid to a t uh, lucas weaver and jeremy t thomas played him i i don't know how old jeremy thomas is he plays a twelve-year-old in the short story. He's supposed to be like nine or ten, but in this, he plays a twelve-year-old. He looks like a young, you know, he looks younger than that. He could have played like ten years old, but uh, he plays a twelve-year-old in this. And just the the weight of the things he had to do, uh, not even just the the dialogue that he had as an actor which he did really well. You know, child actors, sometimes it it can be very much hit or miss. But when you find the right actor for the right role, like they did here with Jeremy T. Thomas as Lucas Weaver, he just nailed it. He nailed the emotion. He nailed the anguish. He nailed the anger that a kid who's going through this, that knows he shouldn't be going through this, he nails that. Uh, Not only did he nail that, but he nailed the physical nature of this character we see a lot of montages of lucas uh, dealing with what's going on in his own home which is you know this character is very smart and very resourceful and and we understand why because he's been left at home to to deal with his father and his younger brother who we kind of meet early on. The first scene is with the younger brother, Aiden Weaver, played by Sawyer Jones. He's supposed to be about seven years old, I believe. He's with his father, Frank Weaver, outside this mine. He's sitting there waiting in the truck. He's running around like he's not supposed to be, but he hears something, runs back to the truck. Frank Weaver comes out of the mine, tells him to stay put, tells him he loves him. You can tell this is a father who who loves his kids but just cannot make the right choices in life. And we find out uh, as he goes into the mine, he and this other guy are cooking up meth. And it's revealed later that he has a drug problem as well as as making it and selling it. So the man, you know, it's typical of, of a lot of parents who abuse their kids. Uh, they love their kids But they just make horrible choices and under the influence of whether it's alcohol or drugs, abuse their kids, something they wouldn't do sober probably. I mean, some would, but but there are some parents that do love their kids, but just they're out of control once they're on whatever smack or whatever liquor that they happen to be on at the time. And you get the sense throughout this that Frank Weaver is that kind of dad that on his best day, he's a loving father, doesn't make the right choices, won't get a job, can't get a job, whatever the case may be, can't provide for the kids, won't provide for the kids, would rather get high. And then that's when when things turn really bad uh, or turn from bad to worse for, for these kids, I'm sure. But again, we don't really get into the nuts and bolts of that. We're just left. We're, we're given enough to wonder what's going on behind the scenes, but we're given just enough to, to know where these characters have come from and know where they're going. And as Frank Weaver and this partner of his are down in this mine, they get attacked by something. The partner gets killed. Frank gets away with his kid, but not after being attacked. And we find that he starts to change and in a, a flashback later in the movie, uh, he does, uh, he recognizes that there's something wrong with him and that he needs to protect the kids from himself. So he, he sets up a, a door into their attic uh, where Lucas can lock it and lock him in there until the younger brother Aiden uh, starts to get sick and, and they have to put him up there and they just have a, an insatiable appetite. So Lucas spends his days trying to find roadkill or he learns how to trap. He's setting up snares to trap animals to take and feed his, his father. And he gets scrap food. Looks like he gets uh, food out of a dumpster from uh, restaurants and stuff to bring up to his, his younger brother, Aiden. And he's sitting there trying to take care of his parent and his younger brother when, you know, he should be just being a kid. And I think that's one of the things that is so hard to watch about this. I heard this about uh, poverty, this being poverty porn, and I just wanted to—I just wanted to tell the reviewer that said that "f you." You know, it's—it's it's people that have never gone through that that look at anyone who is upset by it as fetishizing it or something. I don't know. But anybody that's had the joys of a welfare Christmas knows what that's like, what that loneliness is, what that, you know, everybody's got nice stuff, but me, uh, what did I do to deserve this? And, and you see this kid Lucas and he's dirty and probably smelly and keeps to himself, but he's a, he's a sweet kid at heart you know, he's, he's sweet enough, the kid that he loves his dad. And even though his dad probably neglects and abuses him, you know, that's what happens in those sort of relationships where, where a parent abuses a child, you know, the kid, you know, it's their parents. They, they love them still. And the, the parent will show the kid just enough love to keep them, keep them from, from running away. But but he's a sweet kid. He's a responsible kid. Like I said, he's still trying to take care of his younger brother who isn't as bad off as his father. And you just, you feel such heartbreak for this kid or, or kids like this. And he's getting bullied by some asshole schoolmate off the bat. It's the kind of kid you want to protect because they don't deserve this. Which I think really, really brought a lot of heart to this. And, and the fact that Carrie Russell's character, Julia, uh, the teacher really kind of latches on to him because she sees the abuse and neglect that he's gone through because she recognizes what abuse looks like in the person being abused uh, because of her past. So she starts investigating, starts trying to to get to know Lucas, tries to get him to open up, and that's where the wheels start rolling into people finding out what's going on with Frank Weaver. Julia gets the principal involved. Uh, she tries to get her brother, who's the town sheriff, Paul Meadows, played by uh, Jesse Plemons, who does a, a, a great job. <laughs> he kind of feels like that that small town sheriff that didn't want the job, but nobody else was running, and he felt the responsibility of, if nobody else, why not me, sort of situation. So he becomes the town sheriff, maybe in a little bit over his head, because when when things really hit the fan... He goes to the former town sheriff, Warren Stokes, who we'll talk about that character in a minute. But one of the things that has tension between Julia and Paul is that Julia dealt with the abuse from her father. And when she could, she left and left Paul. And you can tell Paul kind of still resents her for leaving him. And she makes the comment about the abuse that she suffered under their father, and he'll never know that. And and he replies, well, you don't know what he did to me. So he, he's obviously had some trauma from this abusive parent that is no longer in the picture, but they're both still dealing with the trauma that uh, that he inflicted upon them and not dealing with it together as you would think they they should and it's causes some tension, but they both love each other. They're both there for each other. But Julia gets Paul, the town sheriff involved in, and in trying to figure out what's going on with the Weavers. And it isn't until the school principal, Principal Booth, played by uh, Amy Madigan, she actually goes over to the Weaver house to investigate. Uh, she hears uh, Aiden whimpering up in the in the attic. So she, you know, she's going to rescue a kid who's who's being locked in an attic. She goes up there and Frank attacks her and starts eating her. And then we see the metamorphosis of what he has gone through from that initial attack come to fruition as these horns, these antlers come sprouting out of his mouth and we don't really see it we see the aftermath where his body has kind of split open like the husk of corn or, or some sort of a bean, and it's lying there and something has come out of him. It's not till we have our, our main character, Julia, and her brother, Paul, they talk to the former sheriff, Warren Stokes, who's played by graham green which i would have loved to seen him have a bigger role in this because i always enjoy graham green is he's just a, a veteran actor of so many great movies and and tv shows of course some of his most notable work uh dances with wolves maverick die hard with a vengeance I didn't think I'd ever talk about this movie series on this podcast for various reasons, but he was actually a part of the Twilight Saga. Just a a ton of big movies that he played roles in. So this man is no stranger to great acting and great movies. They come to him with what's going on with Lucas and all the questions that surround what happened with his father. And Lucas is in class drawing these pictures because Julia has really, uh, we see from the beginning, she's talking a lot about lore and folklore and folk tales And he comes up with this folk story, this uh, folktale about his family that is very disturbing. And on the outside looks more like a, a kid who's being abused, crying out for help. And, and that may be, be very well true, but uh, it also has an underlying meaning of what's going on with his father and his brother in regards to what they're becoming. And she takes these pictures to Sheriff Stokes, and of course he recognizes these pictures and pulls out an old book and starts talking about the Wendigo and some of the lore that that follows this mythical creature. Now I've heard some, some complaints from fans, uh, especially one on, there's a Facebook group for Shudder fans, the uh, streaming channel. And, but there's a lot of other talk about different movies and things on there. And uh, Antlers was brought up and, and one guy starts bellyaching about how well, this is in the Northwest, and the, the Wendigo is, is more native to the Northeast and the, the Midwest, the Great Lakes areas, and it's, it's not factual uh, information, and, and how you kill the Wendigo is not true. And I'm like, well, dude, one, this is a mythical creature. It's not real. So the rules by which fable and myth have been established, don't really have any bearing uh it would have been nice if it were uh, the god's gospel to the letter representation that the algonquins uh, devised in, in their mythology back hundreds of years ago it would be nice if it was that but this is a movie this is a horror movie it's fiction and did they play a little fast and loose with the rules of engagement with wendigo yes uh, did they little play a little fast and loose with the actual geographical location of Wendigo? Yes. But again, if I've preached anything on this podcast, there has to be some suspension of disbelief and just sit back and enjoy the effing movie and stop nitpicking every little detail because you read it in a book somewhere, so... This myth has to be adhered to all the mythological rules and regulations forthwith. So, needless to say, I didn't care that the Wendigo uh, made his way to Oregon and the northwest part of the United States of America. That did not bother me. Also, something that did not bother me was the creature design because I've seen the Wendigo represented in a lot of different things. Uh, Stephen King represented the Wendigo and Pet Cemetery. We really didn't get much of a representation of it in the 1989 movie. You hear it more, you hear it howling, you hear it crashing through the woods, but you don't ever really get a good glimpse at it. Uh, I, I think they showed it in the new version of Pet Cemetery, but I've tried to block that movie out from my mind, so forgive me if I'm not really remembering that 100 but the wendigo is represented in the book pet cemetery and that is the that's the source of record on that but but i've seen wendigo represented in other movies and was always a little bit disappointed this had to be the best on-screen representation of the wendigo that i have ever seen uh it, it looked like a lot of the drawings it looked more horrific than a lot of the drawings when you finally get to see the wendigo in its full form in those last scenes it's the stuff of nightmares and we've seen that uh, now frank weaver is this wendigo and he's got his son aiden so he has the wherewithal he understands that it's still his son Uh, he understands that his son has whatever sickness that has marked him to potentially become a Wendigo and or the Wendigo. Uh, There again, you don't really get all the rules thrown at you as to to what makes a Wendigo, but you get enough to to understand what's going on. Uh, Again, they leave a lot to the imagination, which which is a fun aspect of this because you don't have all the answers laid out before you. You don't get the Mark of Thorn, the Cult of Thorn, and some sort of weird cloning lab experiments all thrown at you all at once, like in Halloween Six. Uh, there is there is some imagination left to be had with with how things work within this world as it pertains to the Wendigo. But Julia seems more inclined to believe Sheriff Stokes and what's going on because of what she's seen, what she's experienced. Her brother Paul, not so much. You know, he's more of a pragmatic person. He doesn't believe in myths. He doesn't believe in fairy tales. He believes in, in the cold, hard facts, like like a good sheriff would. But now that Frank and Aiden are gone, Lucas has no place to go. They take him to the hospital, treat him for his obvious dehydration and malnutrition. And Julia takes Lucas to, to come live with her and Paul, at least for the time being. And while there, of course, Frank, the Wendigo, comes knocking. And uh, we see Paul's deputy killed Paul, smart enough, puts a flak jacket on and survives a Wendigo attack, But, uh, but is worse for wear. And Julie and Lucas know that he's gone back to the mine where this all started, so they track down... Frank Weaver is the Wendigo and and Aiden to this mine. Of course, Lucas runs right in. He's looking for his brother. He just wants to protect his brother. Julia runs after him. They get into the mine. She's been told by Sheriff Stokes that the heart is the weakness of the Wendigo. He's weakest, especially after he's eaten. Uh, She goes in there to find Lucas and Aiden. Uh, She finds the Wendigo feeding on, I believe it's a bear, and she attacks with this, with this long iron pole. And there's a, actually a really good fight scene between Julia and the Wendigo that it, it's believable. Because, you know, you see a lot of fight scenes where this big hulking creature takes on somebody and you're like, oh, that person wouldn't stand a chance. But they're going 10 rounds with this creature. But this, this seemed a little bit more believable. She took her lumps, but she also gave... Uh, her lumps, stabbing him with this pole, this iron pole. And just when we think that uh, the Wendigo finally has got the upper hand, Lucas stabs him in the back with this pocket knife that he's had, uh, since the beginning of the movie. It's, it's not really, it's kind of one of those things where you you can't pull out a gun in the first act without using it. in the third act, he's got this knife that he's had on him, but he finally uses it to stab his father because he just, he's trying to protect Julia. He's trying to protect Aiden. And that gives Julie the upper hand to, to get him in the heart and stab him and kill him, kill the Wendigo. And one of the, the saddest scenes that you'll ever see is the fact that now the Wendigo is dead. The spirit of the Wendigo is looking for a new host, and Aiden is right there. Aiden has this sickness to become the Wendigo, and you see him start to make the transformation Lucas does not want her to do it, but she makes him understand. She makes him tell her that he understands that this has to be done. And in a Carol look at the flowers from The Walking Dead moment, she tells Lucas to look away and she takes the knife from Lucas and she goes and hugs Aiden as he's starting to transform and she stabs him to death. And it's just... It is so heartbreaking. This this movie has a lot of heartbreak in it because you have the heartbreak of of the Lucas character and all that he's going through and all that he's gone through and it's just he's sweetest little kid and shouldn't have to go through that. Aiden is younger and he's a sweet kid as well and he didn't ask for any of this, but it has to be done. There's no coming back from this. There's no cure for this, and and the fact that Julia has to do this, that Lucas has to let her do this. It's just, it's so heartbreaking. And then at the end of the movie, we see some time has passed, not much time, but a little time has passed. Um, Paul is out of the hospital. He's got his arm in a sling. Uh, Paul, Julia, and Lucas are by a river or a lake or pond or something of, of that nature. And they're talking about how Lucas is off playing their t- Paul and Julia are talking about how they're going to keep him for now. And what if he turns, you know, and they'll just deal with it. It's pretty much what it boils down until they'll, they'll watch for the signs. And as Lucas and Julia walk away, Paul, you start to see him coughing and this kind of blood coming out of his eye, which was a telltale sign for Frank and Aiden as to them, being caught with this sickness that made them a host for the wendigo Uh, so now it's it's obvious paul has it and that's where it ends and it was such a to me such a good movie because you had uh, one of the things that, like i've said before you had the patience to let this all play out the way it did Uh, you had the patience to not reveal this creature too soon and not reveal so much of why this was going on i mean you got enough to get a sense of what was going on but you didn't have everything spelled out for you which i think is a a great testament to the directing of scott cooper and guillermo del toro as a producer of this and and the writing was just phenomenal and you have the the patience to let this story play out, let these characters play out. The fact that they gave these characters, especially the Julia character, you didn't get this backstory in the short story. She was just some teacher that came to this small town as part of this uh, project. Uh, I think Teachers for America, where they send uh, teachers into these small towns to help you know teach the kids. It's a poor area, and you didn't get any backstory with her. And in the short story, uh, this is going to be a spoiler for that. She does not make it uh, because the ending turns out uh, completely different from what happens in the book because it it, kind of relatively goes the same way. There's no Paul in this. Uh, There's a different sheriff, but he's not related to Julia. Julia is a stranger in this town. But she does take in Lucas and they're at her place and the Wendigo and Aiden even becomes a small Wendigo. But they never really call it that in the short story. They talk about the Aiden-like creature, the Frank-like creature. They have horns. They have these antlers coming out of them. Uh, They never call it Wendigo, but you can see where that was what Nick and Tosca was alluding to was Wendigo and they show up looking for Lucas and it ends with Julia meeting her untimely demise and Lucas is nowhere to be found and the story just ends cold so you really got a lot of story with this that you didn't get with the original short story the original short story was short sweet it was horrific it was kind of that slow burn you really didn't get much horror you got more horror throughout this movie than you did with the short story because you really didn't get any of the short horror until after the wendigo gets let loose from this place from the from the weaver house and then when they show up at at julia's uh, cottage that she's renting. Whereas this, you do get some of those elements of horror. You get the horror of, of Frank and that transformation and the little glimpses you get of him as as he's locked in this attic. Uh, you get the horror of the initial Wendigo attack where Frank is infected with this. You get the horror of bullying that, that we see with this one kid that is constantly bullying Lucas and, and when Wendigo is unleashed on this town, uh, he is one of the first to go and you don't see much at all of the, the creature, but, but you know, he's there and you know what happened to this kid. Uh, He got ripped in half and I think that's another triumph of this is that they didn't... I mean, it's got plenty of gore. It's got plenty of blood and guts. It's got plenty of suspense. It's got plenty of horror, but none of it is played too soon. I mean, there is really, like I said, that patience to to hold off on showing this creature. Even when we get the attack at Julia's place, Julia and Paul's place where the deputy is killed and Paul's attacked, you really never get a... Completely good look. The only time you really get the good look is when Julia and Lucas go to the mine looking for Frank and Aiden, and you see this creature. I mean, it's still dark, it's still lit by flashlight and flares, but you see enough of this wendigo, this creature as it rises up and still has the remains of Frank's face, this flesh like, draped over its snout, and and then it eventually kind of slides off in a sickening, slimy, wet, goopy slide. It's just, it's very horrific, and this is probably, I don't scare easy, but some of the scenes in this, I really felt kind of that, that tensing in my stomach, and that chill down my spine, and they really did a good job of playing up that suspense of of this character what is this i i, I got to see it it's to the point where you know you're about to break you're about to crack i can't take it anymore i can't take the suspense i got to see what it is and then when you finally get bang that reveal and you're like oh my god this is what i've been waiting to see and it is the stuff of some of my worst nightmares that to me makes such a brilliant horror story. And I enjoyed this so much. I enjoyed the acting. You know, every actor in this. Maybe some of them weren't the biggest names, uh, but they did have quality actors. Uh, like I said, Graham Greene is a, a veteran. He didn't have a huge part in this, but he had just enough to, to lend that weight that you get from, a, from an actor that's been around as long as he has. Carrie Russell is, is a phenomenal actress. You know, everybody thinks of her as Felicity and those, you know, crappy little rom-com TV shows of the '90s sort of sort of thing. But but she is a a top quality actress, and especially when she decides to do genre, she really she goes for it, and is not afraid to do genre, and does a really impeccable job. Jesse Plemons uh, did a great job as Paul. Scott Hayes did a fantastic job as Frank Weaver. You really felt what what little you caught of him uh, being a normal human being on there, you caught that uh, that flawed characteristic in him. You also felt that love for that true love for his kids. And then when he starts making the transformation, the the things he has to do, the the body contortions and the guttural screams and, uh, you know, almost. It it almost looked at some points like uh, when they did the transformation of Schmiegel into Gollum in Lord of the Rings, uh, Return of the King, I believe it was. That's kind of what it felt like that him him going through that sort of transformation, and he just did a good job with the physical acting of that as well. And then I can't say enough about Jeremy T. Thomas, the little kid who played Lucas Weaver. You know, it, it's always funny to see. Uh, young kid actors who do such a fantastic job and and will they grow up in into great adult actors uh, I don't know what his future holds, but I, hopefully he sticks with it and hopefully he does more, especially in genre because this kid carried a lot of emotional weight with this character of Lucas Weaver uh, both playing the the melancholy of a sad lonely child that his, his life is relegated to taking care of his sick father and brother uh, knowing that something horrific is going on with them and just trying to to hold his family together no matter what that's a, that's a lot of weight for an adult to play little and a little kid and and one to be able to to nail the dialogue you can say the lines but if you don't feel the lines they're not believable you could tell you know he was doing a fantastic job and feeling those lines and you felt that that remorse for what he's going through that self that self-remorse that anger that he's having to go through this that melancholy that sadness inside of him for what he's going through and, and that loneliness that he feels you could feel him portraying that in the lines that he read and just a fantastic job not to mention the physical aspects of expressing these feelings without actually saying words which he did a phenomenal job with i cannot wait to see more from from Jeremy T Thomas who played Lucas Weaver in this he he along with Carrie Russell really made this movie uh they were really uh center stage and the stars of this show and I don't know whether they're going to do a sequel anymore these days. It seems like every movie is set up to be some sort of franchise. They do it with at least one sequel in mind. And the way they ended this with the Paul character catching the Wendigo sickness, the Wendigo flu, whatever you want to call it, it looks like they could do a sequel. I kind of hope they don't. I I do like the idea. And I know, like I said, it's not one that's in in high fashion these days but i like the idea of just doing a one-off story you don't have to turn it into a franchise you don't have to make it into a trilogy you don't have to have a sequel you can just let the story be itself and live on its own now if they do a sequel can they delve into these characters a little more certainly there's a lot of meat still on these bones and I would love to see more of these characters. Uh, I would love to see more of Julius backstory, Paul's backstory, Lucas, what he becomes as a, as he grows into a young man that, you know, how much the trauma that he went through is going to show through in that. There's a lot of things that they could do if they did a sequel with this. Uh, do I need to see it? No. If they did a sequel, I may not think it's necessary, but I'd certainly go to see it because I think... Like I said, this is a movie that just has everything that I'm looking for in really good horror. Now I've heard people call this elevated horror or high horror or whatever, or them trying to do it. Uh, I don't think it was. I think they were just trying to tell a good story. And that's what you got. You got a story with a lot of heart. You got a story with characters you cared about, characters that you wanted to care about characters that you wanted to see make it to see the light of day after all the darkness and in this case a lot of those characters did make it some of them didn't but a lot of them did and uh, a sequel may not turn out so so well but uh, but you had a lot of characters you care about you had a lot of suspense you had a lot of tension building and then you had that grotesqueness you had that that body horror that sometimes it plays well on the screen sometimes it just plays hokey this in this case it played really well and and the creature design uh was bar none some of the best i've seen in a movie in a long time so this had all the all the boxes checked for what i look for in a really good horror story and like i said i know there have been some people reviewing and and critiquing this and And they're not happy with the slow burn. They're not happy with the characters. They're not happy with the fact that they got the wind to go wrong. But if all you wanted is just some creature feature with a creature larger than life on the screen from the beginning, hacking and slashing its way through town, this wasn't that movie. It never was going to be that movie. No matter what you thought, watching the trailer back in 2019, early 2020, whenever this first came out, this was never going to be that. You, you had to know there was something deeper going on here, and that's that's one of the things I hate when when people are reviewing movies and they put their own personal wants and desires ahead of what the movie was intended to be in the first place. You can't do that. You can't. I. You can't say I only like this kind of movie, and if this movie doesn't live up to it, it's not any good. Now, if this had been a movie where a monster was rampaging through town and we saw it from dawn till dusk, if it was still a good movie, I'd say so. But this wasn't that movie, and it was still a good movie. So, I encourage you, if you've stayed with me for this whole podcast and you haven't seen the movie yet uh hopefully i didn't deter you from watching it hopefully i didn't spoil enough for you to uh, yeah i'm the kind of guy that you know i don't mind something being spoiled if it's a good movie i'm gonna enjoy it anyway but if you have seen the movie uh i i'd love to watch it again i don't know if i'm gonna go to movie theater to watch it again uh i'll definitely buy it when it comes out on blu-ray i'm excited because this this movie was a, a really good movie could it have been better certainly did it need to be better? No, because I enjoyed it just the way it is. And my hat is tipped to Guillermo del Toro for another horrific installment of uh, something he's had his hands in. And he he does horror with heart, I think, better than anybody, whether it's directing or producing. And Scott Cooper, uh, fantastic job on this. The cast, fantastic. The writing was, was really good as well. Uh, again, like I said, things could have been fleshed out a little more. We could have had a little more explained, but I don't think we needed any more explained because it still left enough for the imagination to to chew on those bones a little bit longer well after the film projector has stopped running. I want to thank everyone for uh, listening and uh, hopefully you enjoyed uh, all my thoughts on Antlers. Really looking forward to uh, seeing this movie again. Looking forward to talking about uh, more movies. We've got uh, plenty coming up. We've got some episodes coming up in the next uh, couple weeks. We're going to be talking about season three of Creepshow. We're going to talk about the Season finale with American Horror Stories double feature as they wrapped up Death Valley here uh, a week or so ago. Just kind of playing catch up with some of the October uh, events and, and shows that uh, wrapped up. Also going to be talking about Dune, the Denis Villeneuve directed Dune that's out in theaters and on HBO Max. You can find that all on our Facebook fan page, Odds Bodkins Curiosity Shop on Facebook, where you can keep up to date with all the episodes for the podcast. Of course, we're always talking about uh, holidays that uh, pertain to the world of horror. We're always uh, putting up articles and trailers from some of the latest movies and TV shows out there. We've got a lot starting right now. Uh, horror Noir has hit shutter. So we're going to be talking about that as soon as I finish watching that series. And we got a lot of other great movies coming out. Uh, in the month of November and as we get on into December. So lots to talk about and be looking on Odds Bodkins on Facebook for a complete schedule of all the episodes we've got coming up here on the podcast. Please like, share this podcast, uh, leave a review. Five stars would be awesome, but to any review you give us will be appreciated. So until next time. Thank you for visiting Odds Bodkins Curiosity Shop we hope that you found something to your liking and visit the shop again soon but even though you may come back you never really get to leave odds bodkins curiosity shop